If you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. We're just going to look at a few verses this morning, a familiar story um, in Luke 8, beginning in verse 22. Feels like fall is setting in. The, the weather is a little bit cooler. It makes me want to um, have a fire in the backyard and play football. I don't know. That's, that's what it makes me want to do. When I grew up, we always played football. We would play street football. I don't know why we did this. We all had backyards, but we wanted to play in the middle of the street for some reason. And so we played street football. And there was always times where um, you would say this this phrase. This uh, maybe we've said maybe you've said this phrase before in playing sports or in something else. You would say, "Who is this guy?" Have you ever heard that phrase? And it's kind of this reference to someone who just shows up and they're playing. Above what they normally play. You know, they're intercepting all the passes and catching all the touchdowns. And everyone says, who is this guy? And we, we know who he is, but it's like someone else has showed up on the field that day. Who is this guy? That's the question of Luke 8. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? The disciples have know him. They are familiar with him. But suddenly in this instance, it's like he is someone totally different. And they say, who is this guy? In in the King James it says, What manner of man is this? That's the question we all have to face. Who is Jesus? Who do we accept him to be? Who do we understand Jesus to be? And then the question that Jesus asks, and we'll look more at this, is where is your faith? And those questions, as we're going to see, play off each other. But let's just jump right into these verses here in Luke chapter 8. And I want to read verses 22 through 25. It says, One day he, speaking of Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake. And they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Who then is this? That's a question that's going to flow through the rest of, of this chapter. It flows into the next uh, narrative about this man who was possessed with demons. And the question is, who is this man that casts out demons? It goes into the next part uh, with two more healings. Then even in, in chapter 9, um, verse 9, Herod, the ruler there, doesn't know what's going on, and he's trying to figure out who Jesus is, and Herod says, John, speaking of John the Baptist, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And then later on, Jesus himself asks the question. He says, who do the crowds say that I am? And then he asks his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And so this question is driving forward. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? What do we understand about who he is? And in these short verses, we get at least one glimpse of who he is as he's, as Luke is telling this narrative and slowly revealing who Jesus is. And it begins in verse 22. It just says, one day. Just one day, 
that Jesus was out with his disciples on that particular day. They all got into a boat, and Jesus said, hey, let's go across to the other side of the lake. And he's referring to the, the Sea of Galilee, or Luke calls it the, the Lake of Gennesaret. Um, it's the same body of water. In fact, I think the fact that it's called both a lake and a sea helps us to get a feel for how big it was. It's not just a small lake. It's not something you canoe across or get in your paddle boat and pedal across. It's it's a good-sized lake, and if you're going to cross it, you need some sailing know-how, but it's not so big that everyone calls it a sea. So it's it's an in-between. Uh, and like I said, it would take some, some know-how to get across this lake. Well, lucky for Jesus, four of his disciples were fishermen. He's got Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They're with him, and they know this body of water. In fact, maybe it was one of their boats that they used. Where did they get this boat from? It could have been one of theirs. And so at Jesus' request, everyone gets into the boat. So it's a pretty good-sized boat. The 12 plus Jesus are there. Uh, they climb into the boat, and they sail across. And it says in, in verse 23, And as they sailed, he fell asleep. Mark tells us that he went into the stern and he laid down on a cushion. It's an intriguing picture, isn't it? To think about Jesus, a human being, God in human form, laying underneath in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and he's sleeping. It's intriguing. It's intriguing, but it shouldn't be terribly surprising, because throughout the book of Luke, it's very clear that Jesus is a man. He's 100% man, right? And we saw this very early on. How is Jesus born? He is born of a woman. Yes, he's born of a virgin, so he's a unique man, but he's still a human being. He's he's a human being. And so he's born. He grows, it says, Luke says, in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. We see in the temptation what happens. He becomes hungry. Jesus becomes hungry. He was filled with human emotions as he interacts with the people in his hometown. And here, in the boat, he's tired. He's really tired. I mean, how else do you explain this? He falls asleep so quickly, and he sleeps through this storm. He's asleep in the midst of a raging storm. Matthew and Mark tell us that, that this came after a long period of ministry, and so it could be that he's weary from what was going on during that day. And so we wouldn't be surprised that he falls so quickly and soundly asleep. But again, it's just this example that Jesus came. He didn't come as some disembodied spirit. He didn't come as an angel. He came as a human being. He came to be like us so that he could identify us. Hebrew, Hebrews 4.15, such familiar words. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. When we face trials, when we face temptations, we understand that Jesus understands that. He sympathizes with it. He was like us, yet without sin. He never sinned. But he felt the things that we felt. And particularly here, I think this is encouraging. I want you to take encouragement from this. Jesus knows what it feels like to come home after a long day, sit on the couch, and fall asleep. To be tired. To be weak. He knows what it feels like when you go home this afternoon, and you turn on the game, and you fall asleep on the couch. <laughs> he knows what it feels like when you are trying to pray before you go to bed, and you drift off to sleep. Jesus relates with that. I find that I find that encouraging. <laughs> I find that encouraging because so often I just feel tired and Jesus understands. I think in our culture in our society it's almost wrong to sleep. If you're so busy, if you're not so busy that you don't have time to sleep, then you're not 
busy enough. I mean, if you have time to sleep for, say, seven hours a night, well, you're not working hard enough. I feel like that's what it is, and I feel like Jesus, in a sense, gives us permission to sleep. I mean, he worked hard, right? He worked hard. He worked to the point of, of exhaustion. But he was fine with saying to his disciples, he says, Hey, guys, I'd like you to get us over to the other side of the lake. I'm going to go take a nap. <laughs> that was fine with him That's because that's who he was. He, he was a human being, and he was tired. I read a book one time by a guy named John Orberg, and he said, Sometimes the most holy thing that you can do is take a nap. And I think that's true. I think we need to embrace that we are human beings. <laughs> are you hear amen? Is that what I heard? Um, that, that sometimes we're tired. And Jesus understands that. He understands that we can't go, go, go all the time. He sympathizes with us. So Jesus here, he's human. He, he relates with us. His humanity speaks to us. And even deeper, it speaks that he is able to intercede for us. And we're going to see that later. But it says here that while Jesus was sleeping, a storm comes down on the lake. A furious storm. I want to be clear here. I don't think the storm comes because Jesus fell asleep. I think it just came while he was sleeping. I don't think that the point here is that Jesus fell asleep and somehow when he was awake, he was keeping the storm away from the boat. And then when he fell asleep, well, it was able to come because he was sleeping. I think I don't think that's what's being communicated here. But uh, there's this idea. It did not. It didn't catch him by surprise. The truth of Psalm one twenty one three to four. This is this is still true. God will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Yes, Jesus was asleep, but God was still holding all things together in some great mystery. So again, take encouragement from this. If something unexpected comes into your life, something that you didn't expect. It's not because God has turned his back. It's not because God fell asleep. It's not because it caught him by surprise or because God made a mistake. The truth of that psalm is, is true. This is what, remember when we studied Psalm 121? I don't expect you to. I had to look up the main point. But way back about, I guess it's about two years ago now, we studied Psalm 121. This was our main point. Have no fear. God is your keeper and he is alert. He is near. He is vigilant, and he is faithful. And that's true. That's true, even as Jesus is asleep in the boat. So storms, the, the, this, the storm comes. It reminds me of Jonah 1.4. It says that the Lord hurled a storm on at the boat. And that's almost what happens here. This storm is just sort of thrown out of nowhere. It descends without warning on the Sea of Galilee. And I guess that from what I read about the weather and the, the topography that this is what's true this happens all the time um, i'm sure mark weinberg on fox 41 can tell us all about the pressure systems and whatnot but i'm just going to take their word for it that this happens often on the sea of galilee it shows up this storm the text says that the boat begins to fill with water this is a big storm it's some translated they, they say that the boat was swamped it's filled with water and it's a dangerous situation that says that they were in danger at the end of verse 23. What are they in danger of? They're in danger of dying. They're in danger of drowning. That's what they say. They say, Master, we are perishing. We're going to die. We're going to be destroyed. This has to be quite the storm when you think about it, because nearly one quarter of the people that are on that boat are experienced fishermen. And they are panicking because of this storm. They've never seen anything like it. 
This is an intense storm. We've all seen storms, right? We've all seen the black clouds rolling in, you know, or, or you've stood and you, you can hear the tornado sirens and you're looking out the window and you say, that sky looks like, unlike anything I've ever seen before. Maybe you've been near the ocean when a huge storm hits, or, or you've just been standing on the beach and you see the waves start to tower above your head. That's just a helpless situation, isn't it? What can you do? What do you do in the face of those things? I'll tell you what you do. You go to the basement and you curl up in a ball. <laughs> or you board up the house and you drive as far away as you can. Why? Because it's, it's helpless. I mean, you can't do anything. And when the disciples see the seriousness of this situation, they begin to panic. They look around and they don't know what to do. And they look around and Jesus is nowhere to be found. He's not there. Have you been maybe in a situation like that? Where you feel like everything around you is falling apart and Jesus is nowhere to be found? That you're calling out for help and you feel like he's asleep in the bottom of the boat? It's a dangerous situation. You begin to panic. You think it's all over. You are in despair. That's where the disciples are. And one of them goes down below, and you almost see them grab Jesus by the shoulders and say, Master, Master, we are perishing. We're all dying. And it doesn't say it, but, and you're sleeping. <laughs> you're down here, and we're all dying up above you. What's going on here? It's interesting to note this word master. It occurs twice, just this emphasis. The last time it was used was in chapter 5, verse 5, when Jesus tells Simon Peter, he says, after he had borrowed Simon's boat, he says, cast your nets on the on this side and, and you'll bring in a catch. And Simon Peter says, Master, we worked all night long and we didn't catch anything. But because you told me to, we will. A similar situation. Maybe it was in the same boat. Maybe it was Simon Peter's boat, and they're in the same place. I wonder if it maybe even was Peter that spoke these words. Was it him that said, Master, we're drowning? And Peter, in that situation with the fish, didn't really understand who Jesus was. And he's grown to know him more, but even here there's just, who is this guy sleeping in the bottom of the boat, and we're dying, and he's down here. And so Jesus wakes up. You can kind of see him. He rubs the sleep out of his eyes. Comes up to the deck of the boat. The, the, the waves are, are surrounding his feet. The rain is probably stinging his face. And the wind is whipping all around him. All the disciples maybe were working hard and they stop and they look. And Jesus then speaks. He speaks with authority to the wind and the waves. He rebukes them commands them. He doesn't put his hand to bailing out water. He doesn't try to fix the sails. He speaks with authority. You know, we all have we all have realms of authority. We all have people and things that, that listen to us. You, you might have a computer or a phone where if you push a button, it'll do what you say because you have authority over that thing. Or maybe at work, you have some sort of measure of of authority. You are in control of, of a certain number of people. And if you tell them to do something, they will listen to you. Uh, we think about um, earlier on with the uh, with the centurion. He talked about authority. He says, I have authority over people, and there's authority. people have authority over me. 
Maybe you have children, and you have some measure of authority over them. <laughs> Maybe not as much as you like. And, you know, sometimes my kids get a little crazy, like this storm, you know, and, and I say, stop it. <laughs> and there are times that they listen, and the storm ceases and they stop. Usually they do. The kids listen fairly well. But I'll tell you something I've never done. I've never tried. I've never, when the storm comes rolling in, looked at the clouds and said, stop. When the tornado comes, I, I have not ever commanded it with authority to stop doing what it's doing. I can talk to the ocean, I can talk to the sky as much as I want, but it doesn't really listen to me, ever. But Jesus, here, he looks into the winds, he looks into the waves, and what does he say? We see in the other accounts, he says, peace, be still. He speaks to wind and to waves. He says, peace, be still. And in an instant, this storm just disappears. The waves stop raging. The wind stops blowing. There's no more rain. Why? Why did it listen? Because he has authority. Because the one who spoke the wind and the waves into existence is now telling them what to do. The wind and the waves listened because the God of the universe who created everything out of nothing, who spoke and they came into existence, is now speaking to them. And so they listen. Why? Because God is not just a human. Yes, we see his humanity here, but what is He is God himself. He is God in the flesh. And when he tells the wave to, waves to stop, then the sea becomes like glass and, and the wind ceases. Can you feel that, that silence? I mean, have you ever had that experience where there's just a ton of noise all the time coming in your ears and all of a sudden it, it stops and things feel even more quiet than they normally do? So just feel this, this silence in this, this, this moment. There's calm. You can just see them standing in the boat, dumbfounded, and, and all you hear is the, the waves are sort of lapping against the side. Of the boat. That's the only noise that's that's coming now. There's silence. And in that silence, what does Jesus do? He turns to his disciples and he says, Where is your faith? Where is your faith? I think it's a loving rebuke. He just says, Why why were you so scared? You came to me and you said, Master, you called me master. Do you do you believe that I'm the master? Do you believe that I'm the King of Kings, that I'm the Lord of Lords? Do you believe that I'm the ruler over all creation? I struggle with this rebuke. I struggle with the fact that Jesus comes to the disciples. They're, they're in the boat. The storm comes. And they go and they say, Jesus, we're perishing. In other texts it says, save us, Jesus. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? I mean, isn't that, aren't they doing the right thing? They're asking Jesus for help. That's what we're supposed to do when the storm comes. So, so why is he in a sense, rebuking them. I think there has to be then an issue with, with the way that they're calling out to him, that they're coming to him with hearts that, that lack faith, that with hearts that say, Jesus, don't you care that we're drowning? That's what another one of the Matthew remarks says. Don't you care that we're drowning? And when they say that, they're saying in their heads, I don't think he does care. He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. He obviously doesn't care that we're drowning. 
Or they come to him and they say, save us. And the whole time they're thinking, there's nothing he can do. I mean, we are the experienced fishermen and we can't even figure out what to do. How is he going to do anything? So as they come, they come, they, they do the right thing, but they come with such weak faith, with such a, a lack of faith, with no confidence in who they're coming to. But Jesus speaks and he stills the waters and the disciples that are no longer afraid of the storm, are they? They're afraid of Jesus. It says they're filled with fear at this man who speaks to wind and waves and they listen. They're filled with awe, with reverence, with astonishment. And Jesus has asked them, where is your faith? And they ask their own question. Who is this man? Who is this guy that's in the boat with us? We thought we knew who he was, and now he just stood up, and he talked to the wind and the waves, and they stopped? And the storm that was outside suddenly enters into their hearts, you might say, and starts to stir things up. Now, who is this man? It's two questions, right? Where is your faith? Who is this man? And I think those two questions inform one another. We could even say there might be one question. As Jesus wonders at their lack of faith, what he is saying, in a sense, is, don't you know who I am? He says, where is your faith? Which is basically saying, don't you know who I am? And the disciples say, they're wondering, who is this man? And the fact that they don't really know who this man is, is why they have no faith in him. If they knew who he was, they would have faith. And they would have faith if they understood who he was. The rebuke of Jesus then to the disciples isn't because they went to him for help, but it's because when they came to him, they didn't believe who he was. They didn't believe that he could help. They didn't know who he was. They were in a panic. We've all been there, right? We just panic. Something comes into our life and we have no idea what to do. And we just, we start running around like the disciples did on the deck of that boat. And they say, what is going on? We are drowning. It's all over for us. But think about another guy on a boat. In the final chapters of the book of Acts, Paul, the apostle, is traveling. He's a prisoner of Rome. And he's heading to Rome. And in the midst of that boat ride, a huge storm comes. Probably a lot like this one. Bigger boat, bigger body of water, maybe even a bigger storm. This storm shows up and it starts to toss this boat around and everyone thinks that they're drowning. They think it's all over. And Paul sits in this boat, totally calm. Cool as a cucumber, right? As they say. Nothing is, nothing is, is, is affecting him. Why? There's a couple reasons. Because in Acts 23.11, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, tells us that the Lord stood by Paul's side and assured him that he was going to Rome. He was going to get to Rome and he was going to testify about the gospel. And so he knew that this storm could not stop him. Because the Lord said, you're getting to Rome. He says, I'm getting to Rome. This storm cannot stop me, because God told me I would. And he also says to them in the boat, he says, the angel of the Lord came to him and assured him that they would survive. And so he, everyone else is running around on the deck, losing their minds, and Paul says, you guys haven't eaten in a few days. You need to eat something. And he's completely unworried about the situation that surrounds him. Why? Is he better than the disciples? No, he just knows more of who God is. He understands Jesus. The disciples are still learning. They're still growing. They don't fully have a grasp of who Jesus is. They think this is before Jesus' death and resurrection. 
This is before they've seen all of the miracles. This is before. They're, they're still growing. But Paul, Paul knew all of that and then some. I mean, he had Jesus himself come and minister to him. It reminds me of when we, uh, when we studied the, the, the book of uh, Genesis. We studied Abraham. And we said about Abraham, when, when God calls him in chapter 12 and then up to chapter 22 when he tells him, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, the son that you love, the son of promise, I want you to sacrifice him to me. We, we said if, if Acts chapter 22 followed directly after Acts, or Acts, I'm sorry, if Genesis 22 followed directly after Genesis 12, I don't think Abraham would have done it. Because he didn't know who God was. But there's this slow progression where Abraham becomes the man of faith because he gets to know who God is more. I think that's what's going on here. It's not, again, that the disciples are, are bad. They just don't know everything about who Jesus is. But the, the more that we know who Jesus is, then the more faith that, that fills us. Because faith is not something just out there, just this word. It's faith in something. And our faith is in Jesus. And for our faith to fully be in Jesus, we need to know who he is. So who is he? Who is Jesus? That's a big part of the book of Luke. He's trying to explain who Jesus is. So think about just what we've learned just up to this point in the book of Luke. What can we say about who Jesus is? We, we learn in chapter 1 a few things. We learn that Jesus is the Son of the Most High. He's going to reign on the throne of David. He's the Messiah. He's the, the horn of salvation out of the house of David. He is our salvation. He's a light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory for Israel, Simeon says. He is the Son of God, busy about his Father's business. You remember him in the temple. That's what he says. Don't need to be about my Father's business. I, he is the Son of God. He is greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who is the greatest prophet that ever lived, Jesus is greater than him. Why? Because he's the Messiah. He's not just the one preparing the way. He is the one that is to come. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit and blessed by the Father at his baptism. Remember that? The Father says, this is my beloved Son. So who is Jesus? He's the beloved Son of the Father. He's unlike anyone else in history in this way. He stands up underneath all the temptations of Satan. When he's tempted, he, he never fails. He never sins. Unlike us who sin all the time, who have, have sinned, he stands up underneath the temptations of Satan. He is in the line of David and Abraham and Adam. He's the second Adam. He's the greater Adam. He does what Adam never could do. Think about chapter 4, that the Spirit of God was on him as he proclaimed good news to the poor and liberty to captives and sight to the blind. He proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. Who is Jesus? He is power over creation. He calls the fish of the sea to come and to fill Peter's net such that they can't even pull it on board. And here he calms the storm. He has absolute power over sickness. He heals Simon's mother-in-law. He raise up, raises up the paralyzed man. He restores a man's withered hand. This is just the first seven chapters. And he heals the centurion servant with a word. He has absolute power over Satan. He casts out demons in Capernaum. He cast out seven demons alone from Mary Magdalene, and we're going to see he cast out a legion of demons from a man next week. He has power over sickness and Satan and death and creation. And it all is coming to this climax as he is lifted up and crucified, nailed to a cross, even though they try to find everything, any, something wrong with him, something to accuse him of, and they, they find nothing. So they lift him up 
to die, and by dying he conquers sin. All of the conquering of sickness and Satan and death points to what he will ultimately do when he dies on the cross. And he brings power over sin and Satan. He brings forgiveness. He makes a public display of Satan on the cross. He triumphs over him. He conquers death. We see that as he raises the widow's son, and then we see that as he raises himself up from the dead. His power over our greatest enemy, over the final enemy, over death. All those miracles point to this fact. Who is Jesus? This is who Jesus is. So the question then becomes, where is your faith? If that's who Jesus is, then where is your faith? If this truly who is who he is, then then why would we ever doubt? Why would we ever panic? Why would we ever run around on the deck of the ship? Maybe you've never come to know who Jesus really is. I mean, you've never really seen him as, as Savior, as, as Lord. You've never repented of your sin. You've never trusted in Christ for salvation. Then you don't know him. You don't know who he is in that sense of, of, of being his own. But as we come to him, as we turn from sin and we turn to Christ, he makes us his child. And, and then we come to know him more and more and more. And then I'd say, Christian, where is your faith? Why are you so scared? I mean, have you found yourself maybe, maybe this week, maybe just recently, you just feel like you're running around on the deck of the ship. I mean, the water's swamping you and you just, I don't know what to do. I'm overwhelmed. You've been watching the news too much and you start getting scared. What's going to happen with this Syria thing? I think the whole world's going to blow up. Christians get like that, you know? We just start to, to lose our head and we say, oh no, I don't think God's on the throne anymore. That's what, that's the way we live, isn't it? Where is our faith? Somehow we may have lost sight of who Jesus is. We forget who's in the bottom of the boat. <laughs> we may not see him, but he's there. He's controlling things, and he controls it with just the word of his power. He's the Lord of all creation. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's, there's absolutely nothing in creation. There's, there's nothing in your life that doesn't happen by his will. He, he is in control of it all. And when we just looked at the book of Luke, think about what he does throughout all of Scripture. That, that, that as we look at Israel, we look at, you know, way back, we look, he creates everything. He is the creator of everything. He speaks and worlds come into existence. That's who, that's who Jesus is. Because he is God himself. He, he delivers Israel out of Egypt. He, he, he takes the entire Red Sea and splits it in half. I mean, he, he filled their stomachs every day with manna. We worry about that we're not going to get food. And Jesus, God himself is the one who fed Israel in the desert. It just fell from the sky. And they didn't have any water, so what did they do? Moses talked to the rock, and it came out. There's water provided for them. Why do we worry? This is who our God is. We think about enemies. Well, think about Jericho. What does he do? He just knocks the walls over. What did they do? What was their battle plan? Let's walk around the city. That was the battle plan because God is the one that fights for them. God is the one that did it. And we worry about our enemies. Why? Have we forgotten who he is? Where is your faith? Who is this man? This is who he is. He's the one that throws down the walls of Jericho. He delivers his people time and time and time again. Joel read these verses earlier. I have to read them again from Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? 
What's the conclusion? If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, because that's who he is. If this is who he is, then, then what's gonna, what is going to, to shake our faith? What's going to hurt us? And then he just waxes on about this. He, I love verse 32. I, I probably quote it too much. Maybe I don't think that's possible, but he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he's given us the son, if he's given us his own son, how will he not give us everything else that we need? He's going to give us everything else that we need because he's given us his son. What are we worried about? He gave us his own son. And, he, and, and we, if we are able to entrust our very souls to him, our eternal souls, then of course we can entrust our temporary lives and anything that would come into to him. Who shall bring any charge against God elect? God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, is, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or a big storm on the lake of, of, of Gennesaret, on the Sea of Galilee? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, in everything, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If this is who Jesus is, if we understand who he is, then we say absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. This is who he is. Why do we worry? Why do we, why do we get scared? Why do we panic? Why do we run around? Jesus is in the bottom of the boat. There's nothing to be scared of. Anything that comes into our life. If Jesus is in the boat, and if Jesus is who he says he is, then there is no storm that can shake the child of God. If Jesus is in the boat, if if, if you are a Christian, then he's in the boat. He gives us his spirit. If he is with us, if we have bowed our knee to him, and he is your Lord and Savior, if Jesus is in the boat, and if he is who he says he is, if he is the Savior of the world, if he is God himself, then there is no storm that can shake the child. So where is your faith? If you feel like you're panicking, if you feel scared, if you feel alone, if you can't see Jesus, if you feel like he is asleep in the bottom of the boat, and you say, I'm perishing here, and you're nowhere to be found, then you need to ask the question, who do you say that he is? Who is he? And if we see who he is, if we see who he truly is, then we will take our faith and we will put it fully in him. We will we will fully trust him, 100%. And anything that comes into our life, we will say Jesus is in the boat. He's God himself. So whatever storm you want to throw at me, life, Satan, sin, temptation, anything, it cannot harm me because I'm a child of God, because God is my Father, because of who he is. Hallelujah. Let's uh, just take a moment of silence, and um, I will close us in a word of prayer.
Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, shown us who you are, that you've given us your word, and then you've given us your son. When Jesus comes and he explains you, he explains who you are, and we see who you are, even Lord, just in this passage, that you are the God who would become man to save us. You are in control of everything. All creation bows to you. Lord, nothing happens apart from your word. And so, Lord, we take confidence. Lord, forgive us. God, forgive us. We, we just, we get so scared. We lose faith. We start running around and we panic. And there's nothing to be scared of. Because you are with us, Lord. And if you are with us, and if you are who you say you are, then there is nothing that can shake us. And so, God, I pray that you would take this this vision, this picture of who you are, and plant it in our hearts. So, God, when the storms come this week, we would say, we, we would just laugh. That we would be like Paul, and we would be filled with calm and rest, because if you are in the boat, then there is nothing to fear. Lord, thank you for the confidence of that. I pray that you would um, that you would minister to hearts that need this word, Lord, that the storm is raging around them and they they feel like they're going to die. They feel like they are drowning. Lord, help them to see who you are and that if you are with them, there's nothing to be afraid of. And I pray for those that maybe the storm is all around them and you're not in the boat. But there is fear that should come into their hearts, Lord, if you are not with them, then there can be separation. But Lord, I pray that they would come to know Christ as Savior. Thank you for Jesus, for sending him to live and to die, to rise again. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.